Okay, I wonder, uh, what do you go to work for? Do you go to earn uh, enough money to pay the bills? Or do you go to earn enough money to enjoy, the, enjoy life after you've paid the bills? Or do you go to work because uh, there's not much better to do with your time? Or is it to get away from the kids? Or is uh, work about making something of your life? Is it about uh, becoming someone influenced in the world, make, leaving your mark? Well, if you're a Christian, then uh, here's an important question. Does your reason for going to work differ at all from the non-Christians that you work with? The Apostle Peter in this book says that uh, being a Christian should radically change our attitude and our conduct at work, in the workplace, and just as it changes our attitude and our conduct about all of life. We've seen as we've gone through this book that Peter reminds us who we are, that we are uh, God's chosen people, his royal priests among the nations, that uh, we mediate God's presence in the world. And because of who we are, we live distinctively, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So we're to live distinctive lives among unbelievers in such a way that they, they see the difference and it makes an impact. And for most of us, the actual place where we do that is at work. That is the place where God's called you to live out this distinctive life. You are God's priest in your workplace. He's chosen you to be his representative there and to make an impact there. What a reason to go to work. To live amongst unbelievers and live lives that are so outstanding that you influence your colleagues for Christ. I wonder if that's one of the reasons you go to work. I wonder if you've ever thought about your workplace as your mission field, as the place that God's put you in order to influence the people you work with. Well, this morning we're going to be thinking a little bit about uh, how we go about that. But before we do it, I just want to make, uh, just say two things by way of introduction about this passage. We're going to be looking at verses 18 to 25. And although uh, this passage refers to slaves, I think it's, uh, it's reasonable to also apply it to us as employees. See, slavery in that culture was possibly quite different from what we usually think of when we think of slavery. So, uh, slaves were often very skilled. It wouldn't be uncommon for them to be better educated than their masters. A lot of them were what we would call professionals, accountants, managers, teachers, uh, doctors. Sometimes they had slaves of their own. Uh, they were paid. They could buy their own freedom. Often it was much better to be a slave than, uh, and be looked after by a master than to be part of the urban poor. And it was very widespread. Peter's addressing the majority of people in the Roman Empire that did all the work. And probably the majority of Christians came from that stratum of society. So technically they're not free, but they could be working in all different kinds of jobs, all different kinds of circumstances. And so in many ways it's relevant to us. We're not, we're not owned by our employers. But we certainly have uh, certain responsibilities, certain obligations that we're bound to by contract. And our boss has a level of authority over us. So it's reasonable to draw some comparison with the workplace. 
But the second thing about this passage is that it's not just about slaves anywhere. The main theme of this passage is actually about uh, how Christians should respond to unjust suffering. It just so happened that it was slaves at the time who were the main people facing that. We said last, last week there wasn't state persecution of Christians, but, but, but there was individuals that were persecuting Christians, and slaves were in particular danger of facing it. See, it must have been pretty threatening for, for a slave owner who's got a slave who is, who is expressing a higher allegiance than to him. What's a, what's a slave owner going to do about that? It would have been normal for a, uh, for a master, he would, he would expect his slaves to follow his religion, to, to worship with him, to go to the temple with him, to worship his, his gods. And, you know, what would a master do if a slave refused to do that? So slaves were in particular uh, suffering for doing what was right. But actually Peter uses this concept of slavery to, to describe all Christians. We just looked at it last week, uh, we heard it read in verse 16. He calls all Christians slaves of God. Everything that Peter says about slaves in this passage, he actually says about all Christians in chapter 3. And throughout the New Testament, Christians are, uh, are described in the same terms, they are slaves. And that's because Jesus set that pattern he said that he came as, as a slave, not to be served, but to serve. And people following him are going to be slaves as well. So slavery is a kind of paradigm for Christians living in a hostile world. So this passage has got something to say to us whether we are slaves or not, whether we are uh, employees or not. Because all of us, as we live, as God's people in the world, are going to have to respond to unjust suffering. So what does this passage have to say to us? Well, firstly it says, submit to your employer. Look at verse 18. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect. So the way that we're to live outstanding lives is, uh, in the workplace, that make an impact is that we submit. And that's going to make us stand out because that is not the way that the world lives, is it? People in our culture don't submit. They're, they're out for their rights. Submission, the idea of submission comes up ideas of weakness, of cowardice, it's demeaning. When I think of submission, what I always think of is when I was a kid uh, on a Saturday watching World of Sport. Remember that World of Sport with Dickie Davis? And uh, every Saturday afternoon, before the footy results came through, they would show some wrestling with like Big Daddy, Giant Haystacks, characters like that. And do you remember, each of those fights, was to be decided by three falls or a submission. And that's what comes into my mind when, when I think of submission. It's something that you're forced to do by someone who's bigger than you and fatter than you and uglier than you. And if, if, that's, your, if that's your view, then you will be appalled because Peter says submit to your employer. Now, he doesn't spell out what he means, but one thing surely that he means is, is it implies obedience. They're, these slaves are to do their jobs. They're to do what's required of them. They're to do it faithfully. They're to do it wholeheartedly. And the Apostle Paul spells it out a bit more in Colossians 3. He says, 
Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you to win their favour but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. So submit to your employer. And maybe you think, well Dave, you don't know my boss. Well, it doesn't matter. Peter says, submit regardless of how good a boss they are. Not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. So what does that mean for us? Well, it means we're to be good employees by fulfilling our contractual duties. We're to do our job willingly, without complaining. We should show that uh, Christianity makes us better employees. Last week we saw Peter say, said, uh, our faith should show that we are better citizens. This week he says, well, we should demonstrate that Christianity makes us better employees. It means we're doing what we're, we're asked to do, that's legitimate within our contract. It means acting with honesty and integrity. It means not spending all our time at work gossiping with other employees. It means uh, not fiddling our expenses when we can or pilfering the stationery. It means not spending all day on Facebook or surfing the web. It means not slagging off the boss when he's not around. And why are we to submit? Well, Paul says it's your relationship with God that leads you to submit. The NIV says, submit to your masters with all respect. But literally it says, with all fear. And throughout the book, fear is the proper relationship we have with God. So, so he's not saying fear of your master, but fear of God. Paul says, submit to your masters because you have a reverent fear of God. So in every situation you find yourself in, you shouldn't think, what will my boss think? But what will God think? And that's a transforming perspective, understanding that we are working for a higher boss. He's the one we seek to please. He, it's his opinion that really matters. And our submission, even to a harsh boss, demonstrates this. How could anybody do this unless he's more bothered about what God thinks than what people think? So submit to your employer. Secondly, endure unjust suffering. For it's commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you see the beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable before God. So what was happening, as I said, was uh, slaves were being punished or uh, being mistreated by their masters because of their faith. So perhaps they were refusing to join in with the master's idolatry. Perhaps uh, they were refusing to do other things that were immoral. Perhaps they were uh, evangelising the other slaves and the master didn't like that. But they were doing good, they were doing what was right before God and they were suffering as a result. And Peter says to bear up in that situation, to endure it, is pleasing to God. Because it's an expression of grace, it's evidence of the change that he's brought about and it illustrates true spiritual freedom. One commentator puts it like this. If, if the Christian responds in kind, he merely 
he becomes merely a victim when he's treated unjustly. But if he bears evil patiently, he has broken the chain of bondage in the power of the Lord. He shows that his service is not forced, but voluntary. He's willing to serve his master for the Lord's sake. His master cannot enslave him, for he is Christ's slave. He cannot humiliate him, for he has humbled himself in willing subjection. And as Christians, we might face unjust suffering at work, mightn't we? Perhaps as Christians, we face mockery because of our faith. Perhaps at work, our employer won't let us set up a prayer meeting or a Christian union. Perhaps uh, we're prevented from, by our employer from talking to other people at work about our faith. Maybe your boss insists that you work on a Sunday or on a home group night when you want to be with other Christians. Maybe uh, your employer expects you to lie, to tell customers that the check's in the post, uh, or whatever, when it's not. Maybe uh, as a consequence of refusing to do these things that are against their conscience, a Christian loses their job, or gains a discipline of some kind, or is passed over for promotion. There's a story in the news just this week about a Christian registrar who was uh, bullied and threatened with the fact because she, she refused to conduct same-sex civil partnership ceremonies. And these kinds of things may come your way as Christians in the workplace. And when they do, Peter says, you are called to endure that suffering because it's commendable before God. But notice it's, uh, it's only unjust suffering that God commends. Suffering that's received because you've done something wrong is not rewarded, that serves you right. It's, it's only genuine, unjust suffering that's commended in this way and provides a golden opportunity for us as Christians to show the uniqueness of Christian service. So submit to your employer, endure unjust suffering. Thirdly, follow the example of Christ in verses 21 to 25. I guess the question we're asking as we uh, look at these first few points is, how can anyone actually live this way? Maybe you think, well, I find it difficult with my friends, my family, in my workplace. And yet the people that Peter's writing to were facing much more difficult situations that, than we face. If his readers are going to do this, they're going to need some pretty powerful motivation. Well, Peter says that in enduring unjust suffering, we're called to follow the example of Jesus. That's how we can live this way. The key idea in these verses is that we have to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. So the idea is Jesus has gone ahead and he's left footprints and and we, we follow stepping in exactly the same places he stepped. Verse 21, To this you are called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Peter says Jesus has left an example. The, the, the word there is, is the word used for a kind of copy book that children would use to learn the alphabet. They would trace around the letters so that they learned how to spell. And Peter saying that, that's what Jesus is for you. He set a pattern and you have to, to follow it to learn how to live. That means uh, that we will view our endurance of under-suffering as 
as a calling to this you are called Peter's already said you, you, about our calling you are called out of darkness into his glorious light you are called as his chosen people a royal priesthood uh, his uh, heirs of his blessing now he says as Christians you are called to endure unjust suffering see when we face unjust suffering it doesn't mean that God has let us down it's actually part of your calling because, because Jesus Christ suffered like that and we're called to follow in his footsteps so what was Jesus' example? Well, Paul, uh, Peter tells us in, in uh, verses 22 and 23. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So firstly, Jesus was blameless. His suffering was completely undeserved. Secondly, he did not retaliate. So when he was accused, he didn't, he didn't fight back. He didn't make any threats. Our natural tendency when, when, we, are, when we suffer and just need to defend ourselves, we try and get our own back, we retaliate. But Peter says, following the pattern of Jesus means not doing that. You don't retaliate. Instead, you trust God to bring justice. Rather than fighting back and defending himself, Jesus left, left judgment to God, knowing that he would bring it about. So Jesus enduring under suffering didn't mean that he didn't care about justice. He, he did care about justice, but he knew that it was God the Father that was going to bring it about. So he trusted that the Father would bring justice. And so he didn't need to retaliate. And whenever we're mistreated, whenever we suffer unjustly, we face a choice. The choice is, are we going to try and fight back and try and get justice ourselves? Or are we going to trust God to right wrongs? That was Jesus' example. When we suffer, so when we suffer unjustly, we can take comfort knowing that Jesus knows how we feel. He, he's been there, he's been mocked, he's been persecuted, he's suffered, he's been hurt. Jesus is not asking us to do anything that he hasn't been through himself. But not only does Jesus' suffering serve as an example for us to follow, but it actually it achieves something for us. It transforms us and it makes, us, makes it possible for us to live this way. See, what Peter says is that Jesus, in his suffering and in his death, he has dealt with our sin. And so he makes it possible for us to follow his example he says Jesus bore our sins verse 24 the, the word there carries the idea of, of bearing them away he removes them he takes them away so, so, so Jesus has, has taken our sins so we no longer are under sin we can live according to God's will so you can follow Jesus' pattern because your sin has been taken away and you can now live righteously and Peter uses two powerful images to get this across. Firstly, the image of being healed. He says, by his wounds you have been healed. So he says that you used to be like someone who was ill. You used to be like someone who, who couldn't live properly. 
But now you've been healed, you've been restored, now you can live like you're supposed to. Secondly, he says that you've returned to God's care, verse 25. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. You used to be like a sheep going astray, you were getting lost, you were going in the wrong direction, you were heading into danger, but now you've come back to God the shepherd and overseer of your soul. God has brought you back. You are now heading in the right direction. You are now living under the rule of the God who loves you and cares for you and oversees you. So, so Peter's saying much more than, than that we're just forgiven. He's saying that you've been restored. Your sin has been taken away. You've been healed. You've come back to the shepherd and because of what Jesus, because of Jesus' suffering and death, you are able to live according to his example. You see, there were, there were lots of examples uh, that, that his readers could have looked to as they, to, to inspire them as they suffered unjustly. They could have looked to the Stoics or to the heroes of Greek tragedies. Likewise, we could look to any number of, of Christians throughout history. And these might be great examples but uh, they don't have the power to change us. They don't have the power to actually help us live this way. None of them have carried away our sins. None of them can heal our brokenness. Jesus' death is not just a pattern for us to follow, but it's the power for the Christian life as well. It doesn't just transform our perspective, but it transforms our lives, it transforms our behaviour, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. The final encouragement in, is this. It's that unjust suffering is actually the means that salvation is achieved. Jesus' suffering and death was for you. It achieved our salvation. And what Peter wants to do, he wants to encourage these slaves that, that in the same way, their unjust suffering might be a means of salvation of others. As they suffer unjustly, it will draw people to Jesus. It will open up opportunities for, the, for them to, to talk about the hope that they've got. It will shame those that mistreat them. Unjust suffering is redemptive. It transforms people. As we live as God's people in the workplace, as we submit to our bosses, as we endure unjust suffering, we, we're going to stand out. People are going to see the difference and it's going to make an impact. It's part of what Peter was talking about in verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. It's a great reason to go to work. It's where God put you to live distinctively, to impact the people that you work with. You are God's royal priest in your workplace when you go to work tomorrow morning remember you are God's priest in that place this gives, this gives meaning and importance to, to the most mundane of jobs it gives eternal significance to the most ordinary routine it, and it exalts even the lowliest position to one of supreme importance When you walk into work tomorrow morning, you are God's priest 
in that place, called to live an exceptional life, so that those around you may see your good works and praise the Father in heaven. Let's pray that God will help us do that.